Hello, and a very warm welcome to the latest episode of the Races Formula E podcast, where we discuss everything electric with motorsport's fastest growing championship. This time we welcome Mark Preston, team principal of DS Digita. British domiciled Australian's almost 30-year career in motorsport, he has held technical and managerial positions at Holden, Arrows and McLaren, but is his part in founding and managing the Super Aguri Formula One team from 2005 to 2008, which really brought him into the limelight. This is when he spearheaded one of the great underdog stories of recent Formula One history, when the team punched well above its weight in 2007 with Takuma Sato and Anthony Davidson. In 2013, the Gurry name was reprised when Preston and the race's technical consultant, Peter McCall, founded the Super Gurry Formula E team, which claimed a famous win with Antonio Felix da Costa at Buenos Aires in 2015. Since that pioneering season, Aguri has morphed into DS to Cheetah, which clinched back-to-back driver's titles with Jean-Éric Verne, as well as the Season 5 team Silverware. As if that wasn't enough, Mark has fingers in many pies in the mobility, engineering and sustainable industries, including the fascinating Street Drain project, which is making it faster, easier and safer deploy autonomous vehicle technology in urban environments. I'm your host Andrew Vandenberg and joining me today to maybe dig a little bit of dirt on Peter McCall and talk about Formula E in general is our series correspondent Sam Smith. Um, Sam, Mark's got a fascinating history in motorsport. You must have met him in paddocks all over the world. What's he like to work with? Hi everyone, yeah um, yeah, I enjoy speaking to Mark. It's uh, always great to get his his thoughts and his analysis on what's going on in racing, technically, politically, whatever. Um, I think being an Aussie, you always get a pretty straightforward answer from Mark, and it's it's always nice to to gauge his opinion. I think he's he's certainly one of the uh, the, the very most respected team principals in the paddock. It always helps if you're winning, of course, but uh, it's just the way it is. But but no, it's always it's always interesting having a chat with Mark. Mark, welcome to our podcast. Uh, obviously, it's been a while since there's been any form of racing. So what have you and team been up to in this time? Hi there, guys. Yeah, we've almost been busier than ever, actually. It seems strange with this uh, working from home, um, using Teams and Zoom and all these other apps uh, seem to have been up really early and stayed up really late um, making phone calls so it seems busier than ever the teams are used to working around the world and um, we're doing quite a lot of meetings I think we're actually doing in some ways more work together while we're um, in different places in the world than we we were before there's a lot more communication going on in some ways and uh, yeah welcome to the new normal I think yeah I'm I think when we come back, the idea that uh, these remote working is really going to have an impact on all of our lives. But uh, as we speak now, towards the end of May, it's looking likely that Formula E is going to be back and racing at Templehof uh, at the beginning of August. Do you think this is a positive move, Mark? Yeah, I think it's really good. Obviously, everybody wants to get back into racing and see some uh, real, real racing cars. And obviously, we're quite keen to see what will happen in the rest of this series. Um I think it'll it'll go well. I think we've been working with PSA and trying to restart our factory in in Paris. Uh, we've had a lot of good advice from the PSA group with DS Automobiles. Um, so I feel like we'll we'll be able to restart an event in a very professional way, making sure everyone's safe, making sure everybody can work easily. I think there'll be a lot of remote working, I imagine, at the track. Um, but uh, we've seen NASCAR do it recently, and there's obviously a number of sports trying to start up now. So I think it'll be good, and I'm looking forward to it. Sam, how is an event like this going to work for you as a journalist? 
uh, remotely in a word i think <laughs> i think that's uh, that's inevitable um i mean we're doing that already at the moment of course and the great thing in formula e is you never you never want for any any stories or, or interest from that point of view but Formula E are, are are looking at um, are looking at uh, finishing the twenty nineteen twenty calendar, uh, and it's likely that we'll be heading off to Templehof, or the teams will be. But I think getting under the thousand personnel limit is going to be very tricky. Uh, so I see some aspects of the paddock having to work remotely, and and I think inevitably that the media presence will be um, will be contained to TV only, and and the written uh, media. Uh, will will likely be working remotely. I think that's. Uh, I don't think there's really a way around that. To be honest with you, at this time, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? Because quite a lot of you know how we work is just spotting people and and catching them as they're on their way to somewhere. It's going to be a very different experience just trying to ring them up and get that winkle that information out of them on the phone. Well, we'll we'll need to invest in some uh, military-style drones, won't we, to follow the team principles into their meetings. But uh, you know, we'll we'll do an exclusive on that soon on the race dot com. <laughs> Mark, obviously, with Formula E is trying to you know get those events done and to try and get this uh, series over and working within social distancing. And but how do you think a post-COVID nineteen championship is going to look when the series starts as a world championship at the end of this year? I think we're going to learn a lot from these events. You always do when you do something for the first time. As we said before, the NASCAR seems to have done a, a good event already in the US, and um, I've actually had a read of their requirements. It seemed all very sensible. It's very similar to a lot of the a lot of the documents that you see from the the factories and stuff that are starting up. We've been doing obviously some research in the background to make sure we know what what's supposed to happen. I think the only area that'll be hard will be obviously for the having fans and maybe some of the sponsors and other people that typically visit a race and obviously for yourselves as journalists. But I think, um, you know, this is the new normal and we're all getting used to it. And I think the processes and procedures will come into place and um, we'll get going with the with the new world championship um, to plan, I think. Yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be tough. Um, I think uh, there's going to be lots of um lots of challenges obviously for the for the promoters and, and the FIA as well i think in terms of uh, reaching milestones just going back to the point about when the championship might uh, restart and, and get reinvigorated to finish the 1920 season uh, we're going to be running a story that uh, the, the tempelhof airfield at uh, in berlin uh, which has been used for four of the five Berlin Epries is the most likely venue for, for starting that in August. And, and the, the facility gives itself over, of course, to lots of uh, lots of openness and, and the ability to get under a thousand people in it effectively and safely. Um, and I think the, the, the interesting thing about if they do go to Temple often it's, it's not confirmed yet. We, we expect something to be confirmed or certainly ratified at the next World Motorsport Council meeting in June that they can use different configurations of track there, which will be an enormous challenge for drivers and teams, of course, but they have the space to do that. The The, the configuration has changed anyway since season one, noticeably, and thankfully, uh, you get rid of all those hairpins. But I think what I can see happening is potentially uh, several races taking place in August. So there could be, for instance, an example, there could be back-to-back double headers there which would then ensure that there are sufficient events to 
meet the regulation that states there's a final classification in the championship because there has to be six events and we've only had four events and five races so far and, and temple off ticks lots of those boxes um but of course the, the main thing before it is announced is making sure it can be done effectively efficiently and um and safely that's the the, the key the key things that formula e will be looking at mark tempoff's always been a slightly unusual case on the championship because of the surface it's tend to th- throw up really slightly unusual and maybe a bit random results what impact would maybe having four races there have on the championship could that sort of turn it upside down yeah it could indeed actually in in the first couple of years we we certainly it wasn't our favorite our favorite track although i think over the last couple of years we've got a better handle on it but you would say that audi's um that done very well over the last few years so yeah it could have a could have an effect being at, at one racetrack definitely what, what is it about it then? Is it just because that surface is so unusual? It's a very high grip surface because it's made for landing planes. And that's a lot different to a normal street circuit, which is obviously just got buses and cars on it. So that's the basic difference. Obviously, you know, we're talking about uh, the um, rules that we have to put in place to ensure the safety of people and social distance and etc. But another big change has uh, happened over the course of this pandemic is the financial impact that people have experienced as well uh, with the potential of a, at least a short-term recession and, and maybe longer than that. We've seen some cost-cutting measures with the 2.5 regulation homologations being uh, restructured. Uh, where, where do you see that we are with that? Yeah, I think that's been really positive. I think uh, Formula E has been quite efficient anyway as a series. We've been quite um, good value for money, so therefore... We're not as quite as impacted, but we're, of course everybody's always impacted because um, when you don't sell things in the real world, it's uh, hard to obviously justify um, spending money on marketing. But I think because these um, these changes have been put in place quickly and, and positively by the by the FIA, I think it's it's always good to do things quickly and make decisions quickly. The governments where most of us are, are based have also been obviously supporting companies, and and we've taken. Um, some opportunities to put people on furlough while we've been waiting to know where we're going next. So I think most people that I've talked to have, have reacted quite quickly and um, uh, strongly to the to the problems, and I think that really helps. And I think you know most of the teams should be should be fine. Yeah, it's uh, it's a big big challenge for the manufacturers at the moment. We've already seen some. Some difficulties and, and some action taken. Obviously, Jaguar uh, announced that the, the cessation of the Jaguar IPAC trophy last week. Um, manufacturers, I've been told by a couple of, of manufacturers in Formula that you know their boards are, are personally signing off checks. Uh, sorry, they're signing off um, purchase orders for five hundred euros. Uh, they're really looking at every penny at the moment, and, and no one blames them because. The, um, the the pandemic has been pretty devastating for the automotive industry. I mean, it's I, I'd be quite interested to get Mark's reaction. Actually, I think I think Formula E, the fact that there are multiple manufacturers in it is is good, because if we lose one or two, of course, it's not not great news. But at least there is a strength in depth in the championship. But there was a, there was a really interesting report that came out today, which stated that um western europe recorded a a record 6.6 electric vehicle mix of total registrations during april which which i think is a a really interesting stat and i've got to i've got to reference uh, matthias uh, schmidt on that one who's a, a european electric car market intelligence uh, journalist and what he discovered was was pretty interesting that 
the electric car market hasn't been affected particularly well, it has been affected but in terms in terms of the uh the fact that it's remaining on track to achieve at least five percent market share this year is i think pretty significant and, and the market penetration being 6.6 as i mentioned in the last month in in april i think is uh you know it's it's obviously showing that that volumes uh fall at half the pace of the total market so I, what do you make of that, Mark? I mean, is that is that something that that the manufacturers will look at and and sort of put into their analysis about how they maybe maintain and and look at the future in terms of marketing based activities such as such as sports and, and formulary? I think it's always it's always good to be working in the future. I think most companies, if you look at some of the share prices in the at the moment, and you look at Apple and others. They're actually still increasing, aren't they? Even though um, things have gone wrong, so the market certainly rewards anybody who's looking to the future. I'll also say that this year is obviously when a lot of the new models have started to come out from all the OEMs. In fact, um, DS is bringing out their DS3 um, electric car. They have done already, and um, so there's a lot of new uh, new cars on the market that has options. It's funny. I I'm actually going to swap my um, SUV this year, and I've been I'd been looking at um, getting an electric car, but the delivery times pre-COVID were actually 12 months, and I was thinking, oh, I don't know if I can wait that long. And of course, I gave them a ring just recently, and maybe I can get one. So maybe the what's happening is that uh, you know some of that some of that um, desire is uh, being able to be met, and and people like myself are saying, okay, I can get that electric vehicle now. And and you know, looking out at the sky here in in Oxfordshire. It's such a the weather's amazing and it does feel like this um, lack of car driving at the moment is having an impact. Maybe maybe people are actually taking that that message um more to heart. It's definitely much more pleasant with there being fewer cars on the road. I think that's that's just a given at the moment. If you like going out cycling or doing whatever you are testing your eyesight on a quick uh, no, um, I, I've gone off on the wrong tangent there. <laughs> We've talked about the delay in 2.5, but formerly has the third generation um, of regulations coming up with the tenders already out for uh, batteries, tyres and chassis. Um, Mark, what are you hearing about uh, that technical roadmap and uh, and how's that progressing? Yeah, I think it's been going pretty well. We, we obviously hear bits and pieces from the FIA. I think that's going to plan. Um, I believe they're dealing with this current, obviously, immediate crisis for the moment and um, putting the decisions for the for the um, Gen three back a little bit as uh, as more I suppose taking more feedback from everybody really um, as we all try to judge how the markets come back how does the reopening of the countries come back because all of that has a big impact on everybody um, associated with the sport I've you know this, this discussions about um, could we do things more efficiently you know we've talked over the years. Could you spread the, the life of a battery for longer? You know, other elements like that. Um, what do we need to change? What's important to change? What are what is important in the in the um, the real world for manufacturers? I think all those things are having an impact. So, one thing that a crisis does is, of course, it allows everybody to just pause for a minute and say, "Okay, all options all options are on the table. Let's look at everything carefully. We don't have to rush. Um, you know, we could delay things if we needed to." So um, yeah, the FIA is certainly um, dealing with the with the current crisis uh, right this minute, and I think they're giving themselves a little bit of breathing breathing space 
to um, make a good decision for the future. Yeah, that that tallies with with what what I hear as well, Mark. And I think there is this period of um, of just reflecting upon how things can be delivered and, and, and keeping as close to the the technical roadmap as as possible. I think the the FIA were initially targeting next month, June of this year, to inform the public about the tenders and, and who was who had tendered and which way they were going to go. I think that's likely to be delayed for the reasons that Mark said, that they've just got a little bit of extra time to evaluate everything and, and which way things are going. Uh, it, it, it's quite in this, interesting in the industry at the moment, isn't it? We've seen the issues at, at Mark's old employers down in, uh, down in working with McLaren's uh, restructuring and uh, difficulties, and there's going to be a significant amount of, of redundancies there as well. And obviously, the current battery suppliers uh, are McLaren in, in conjunction with uh, Ativa over in San Francisco. So it's going to be interesting to see how that pans out, especially. But, you know, I'm, I'm hearing that there are some significant companies that have tendered. And we'll just have to wait and see what the the FIA evaluation of those tenders is. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to, to see how that plays out, because obviously, you know, we've, we've had, I think... The work that McLaren did on on this battery's been, you know, nothing short of amazing, really. Given when the original specs were put out, I had a, a couple of people tell me that it wasn't going to be possible to, to to hit those specs in the time that they were given. And as far as I'm aware, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there's been a technical failure on one of those parts, has there? In the couple of seasons we've had so far, we certainly haven't have haven't had to do so many battery changes. I remember in season one, um, the amount of battery changes we had to plan for a weekend was. Certainly quite um, hard work for the mechanics. But then again, at the time, you know, Williams was the first people to ever do a battery of that size. So what's great about, you know, working in technology is the the first time often is difficult, obviously, um, and often takes a couple of iterations to get it right. And that'll be that'll probably be true of, you know, getting a race working well in this um this new normal as well in you know in the world and the drivers did a great job last season in giving them massive crash tests every weekend as well so you know if they survived that they could survive anything uh, talking talking about drivers um even though there is obviously technical differences between the cars they are still fundamentally uh, the same um, obviously uh, Jean-Eric Verne has been a key part of Tachita since it was set up do you consider him your uh, star asset mark and how have you been dealing with the slight, the you know, tense situations that has been on track between him and Antonio uh, over the past few races? Yeah, obviously, I, I I say that we've got the two top drivers. Of course, that's that's my opinion. Um, I think you know we've proved it in the last year or so that uh, having two top drivers delivering points, especially in this series when so many random things can happen, and given the qualifying format. You know, one driver can end up at the front of the grid one weekend and the other one at the back, um, has, as has happened to us in the past. But the one who is at the front has to make it count. And obviously, over the last couple of years, Jeb really done that well. And I think that's probably um, given him some of the championship, you know, uh, wins that he's had, you know, times like Monaco and Bern and, and other places where when he's been on pole, he's won. And and I think, you know, then, then the next week when you're, I mean, group one qualifying and maybe you get knocked out because of the big changes in track and end up sort of 12th or, or 13th on the grid. Maybe the um, his partner driver is uh, up the front because, you know, ended up in a different group. If you look over the season, I think you really got to have two top drivers in some ways more 
more so than any other series, perhaps, because of the qualifying format that, that induces so much randomness, which is obviously great fun for the fans to watch. Um, a bit annoying for us, obviously, when when um, the things that go wrong go wrong because of the the way that the, the series is set up, but it keeps it exciting and it keeps it fun to watch. Um, yeah, it's great having Antonio. Uh, we worked with him in, in season one, so of any driver on the grid, he was probably the best choice we, we had, and, and it still is, um, because we'd all worked with him together before, or not all of us, but a number of us had worked it with him before. Jeff had worked with him in... Um, in the Red Bull days, so the sort of integration of a new, a new personality into the team um, could happen much quicker, and, and that certainly meant that he was up to speed immediately. Um, obviously, we had a few issues in Saudi, but you know, all in all, leading the championship is uh, quite good. Yeah, I think I think the um, the prized asset tag on on Vern is is apt, really, in terms of what he's achieved people forget and you can actually we're not going to touch on this now but on the site we're going to have uh next week the sort of birth of Tajita and how it it, it morphed from Aguri from the ashes of Aguri into into Tajita back in 2017 it's a fascinating story uh but but Vern has played a major part in that and what I like about the relationship between Vern and, and his team is that he's demanding he knows he's demanding the team and the engineers accept that and they know he's demanding but they still get the best out of each other and that that is a rare thing that doesn't often happen in racing because it's you know it's naturally full of egos it's full of you know we want to do this we want to achieve this and whatever but the team ethic from that standpoint from their star driver and um you know antonio felix de costa might have something to say about that term at the end of this season i don't know but i think mark's pretty correct in the sense that he's got two of the best drivers uh, out there in formula at the minute but from Vern's standpoint i think what he's achieved it, it puts him at number one we did a recently did a ranking of the drivers and there was no doubt in my mind that he should have been number one and it's going to be yes it's going to be fascinating now to see how he reacts to the challenge of uh, of da costa and the early races uh, uh, some of them were a bit fraught as mark attested at diria and uh, also santiago antonio wasn't particularly happy but i think that was more about just the the gelling and, and a few sort of growing pains of coming back coming back into the team that he used to drive for obviously it's very different in terms of structure so there's a lot of really fascinating points in that in not, not just the relationship between the two because they you know they they they're good friends but they're rivals also, and there's the old adage about you, you know your most fiercest rival is your teammate. So that's always there, but it will be really interesting to see how things pan out for the, for the rest of the season when it when it restarts in a few months' time. One of the most interesting things for me when I was working in Formula e was was seeing the sort of evolution of Jev because you know when he came in uh, midway through season one with Andretti and. I don't think he really knew what it was, why he was there. You know, he'd just been cast out by Red Bull and then through the, the Virgin season where he never really seemed to, to gel with the team. Mark, have you noticed a, a change in, in his sort of maturity and approach in the time that you've been working with him? You know, it's um, interesting. I've been watching that uh, series on Netflix, The Last um, the Last Dance, and uh, it was interesting to watch, you know, the the um, championship winning team on, on, that, on that show. And when you... When you think about it, I, I keep saying it's some people, lots of people say, what's the magic, you know, what's the magic bullet? And that um, certainly there is no magic bullet in my in my opinion. I think Jev 
and all of us grew up together as well. I noticed things with all of us along the way. So, you know, from the beginning when we weren't organized and we, you know, we didn't have everything ready and, and those kind of things. And, you know, the way he pushed everybody and everybody pushed themselves and have all grown up together. I think stability in obviously driver, having him um, uh, as a cornerstone of the team and uh, many of the others, myself, Leo, a lot of the engineers like Pascal and others, all working together, I think it's a you know it's a team a team effort, and I think he has also enjoyed um, uh, maturing might be the right word with a group of people. So it's not like every year you have to learn a new group of people. Um, we've all worked together. It's easy to tell people off. It's easy to com complain about things, but not blame too much. You know all the all of the bits that are positive about teamwork. I think working together over a long period of time certainly brings um, benefits. And you can see that in obviously every sport, I think. Um, when things chop and change, it really makes it difficult to, to be consistent and go forward. So yeah, he's, um, he's certainly uh, grown and, and really grown into a, a great champion. I don't particularly want to dwell on the events of last weekend and what happened with Daniel Apton. Sam, you went on to our esports podcast to talk about that in some detail. But what one of the unintended consequences of it might be is that it creates an opportunity for Rene Rast. And I just wanted to take a little moment to talk about that because I think the drive he did for you at Alexanderplatz is, was one of the great unheralded drives that took place in, in Formula E. Yeah, Rene took a bit of a risk, obviously, doing just one weekend. And we all know how much experience is required in Formula E to really have an impact. And to be fair to him, he, he did take a risk, as I say, um, jumping in doing all the preparation he could in a short space of time and, and just trying to hit the ground running and, and make the biggest impact he, he could over one weekend. He's a he's a lovely guy and he did a great job for us. And yet I don't think people understand how hard it is in any racing, in, in any racing team, but especially in Formula E with the uniqueness of the tracks, the one-day format, there's no time to build up to the to the race pace. Um, yeah, he did, a, he did a great job on those weekends and um, I'm sure he'll, he'll have success. We had uh, Scott Elkins on this show two weeks ago. Sam, I forget. Time uh, times almost merges into one at the moment. I never really know what day of the week it is, uh, you know. But he made the point that it was unclear how multinational companies and global manufacturers are going to have to change from a sustainability point of view um, following all of this. So you know, you're quite involved in in that part of the world. Do you see that that sort of sustainable culture and responsibility being a more important thing now? Yeah, I think um, obviously crises allow um, certain focus and, you know, some things that maybe weren't getting done or had been put on the back burner sometimes come to the fore. So often when there's a crisis, you know, you can actually maybe quicker to make decisions that were unclear previously. Um, when you have a crisis, you can make decisions more quickly sometimes. So I'm imagining that, you know, many of the big corporations in the world are actually putting in place things that they've been considering, wondering, looking at scenario planning for. And um, when something like this happens, they, they sort of implement those things quite quickly. Um, from a sustainability point of view, uh, I've, you know, in a presentation I did recently, I was asked, could I do one slide on COVID-19? And I, I grabbed the picture of the, um, uh, the gate in New Delhi, I think it is, the famous photo that's now in lots of magazines and newspapers of the, the smog versus the clear skies. And I don't think any of us are going to be able to forget that. Um, and there's, there's all sorts of examples around the world. And I'm imagining that as we come out of this, 
crisis, we'll see more and more discussions on, you know, are we doing everything well? Is this the next big um, push towards sustainability and um, and the future? So I think, yes, there'll be a new focus. I don't think any of us are going to forget some of the things we saw, like these clear blue, clear blue skies and some of the, you know, loss, loss of congestion and working from home does work out quite well sometimes for the people that can do it. Um, so, yeah, I think the crisis will have a big impact and, and, I, and I, hope it, I hope it will be a really positive impact. Obviously, a key part of that is mobility. Um, at the top of the show, we mentioned the street drone project that you're involved in. Can you explain a little bit more about that in detail? Yeah, as part of my um, looking forward into motorsport of the future um, and also automotive, which is my favourite business, I like to be try to be at the leading edge of, of everything. And um, obviously, that's part of the reason why I got involved in Formula E so early as soon as um, the FIA and Alejandro got everything going. Uh, at the very beginning of uh, Formula E, also Robo Race started to look at autonomous vehicles. And so we thought, okay, maybe this is the logical next step for the automotive business. And we started working on that early on. Uh, my my partner, Mike, he runs that business day to day and um, he's pushing that forward really hard. And you can imagine at the moment, there's a lot of discussions about uh, I think we're calling it zero touch deliveries. So, can a you know a, a parcel maybe go from the Ocado pick and pack center and potentially never see another person until you take that parcel out of the vehicle? That's obviously something that's um, becoming quite a curiosity or an interest for a lot of people. So, that's one thing that we're looking at. You can imagine we've had more requests now. So it's funny how you know when some things are, there's a crisis in one area that often drives innovation in another and so we're we're getting a lot of requests in that area to demonstrate things low speed um, autonomy is something that's more doable than than high speed so just quickly if you're looking at going on a motorway at 100 miles an hour that's potentially less complex than driving at they say 60 miles an hour along a winding country road because on a motorway it's very defined it's like being on a racetrack you've got barriers and, and very known circumstances so what we do a lot of is developing a, a controlled operating design domain, meaning we're almost trying to set a racetrack and say the car can only drive in these areas at this speed. We know these risks. We can control these parameters. But the more you control the parameters, the more possible it is to do an autonomous vehicle. So that's really a lot of the, um, the focus at the moment. Oh, it's going to be um, fascinating to see how the uh, autonomous thing plays out and especially that middle ground between having a number of autonomous vehicles on the roads and not and how they interact with, you know, uh, some drivers who are maybe, I don't know, texting or WhatsApping or TikToking rather than paying attention in a, in a robot-driven car that's following that pre-planned route. You'll see that when we ran out one of our vehicles down in London at the test labs, there is a, a couple of videos we did see online where they tried to test our vehicle. So that does happen. How did it work out? Uh, we just stopped. <laughs> and waited for them to go on. <laughs> it's probably the wisest course of action at the moment. Yeah. Um, well, we're all fascinated by the future, and I think people who are into Formula E in particular are. Uh, one of the great things about motorsport is its illustrious past, and one of the great names in that course was Tom Walkinshaw, TWR and Arrows. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you first got working with him and, and what that was like? Yeah, I started with, um, I was lucky enough to start with uh, TWR in Australia when they owned um, Holden Special Vehicles, which they still do actually. 
um, which is a, like the AMG of um, General Motors in Australia. So I started working there. And then when he, when Tom bought Arrows Grand Prix, I put my hand up and said, I want to go to the UK um, and work in Formula One. And after, a, uh, I think it was two weeks, I was going to be here for two weeks or two years. And then I'm here for 20 years later. Um, I got a job at Arrows working with, um, with TWR, which obviously owned Arrows. Um, I was a stress engineer at the beginning. And um, yeah, I had a, a, a great career there, really enjoyed it, um, worked my way up to head of R&D, obviously got to work with Tom Walkinshaw, I got to work with people like John Barnard, who um, was uh, quite an interesting character, learned a lot from him. Um, you know, Tom was a, a very, I would say, entrepreneurial character, so he was always trying to put together the, you know, the big deal that would, um, that would you know, take us to the front. And um, perhaps um, people underestimate how hard it is to get all the pieces of the package. You know, at the time we had a Yamaha engine with Bridgestone tires and and Damon Hill, but maybe we were missing enough power and we didn't have quite all the pieces of the puzzle. It's funny how when I look at what we have at um, DS to Cheetah now that I feel like we have many of those pieces of the puzzle that Tom was trying to put together in F1. And obviously in his past, he'd done that many times in in Le Mans with, um, with the famous silk cut Jaguars, um, touring cars and other things. So um, maybe people underestimate how hard it is in F1 to put together the right package um, to win and, and, and very, very difficult. Of course, you famously came so tantalisingly close in Hungary on uh, 97. What was that like? I mean, because it, it was still an amazing result for you, but to had victory snatched from your grasp so close to the line must have been a devastating blow i've still got that magazine after you guys did the um uh, v10s podcast i got the old magazine out and put it on the wall so i did get damon <laughs> to find that at the time yeah it was, it, i mean it, it teaches you a lot you know when you when you lose a race from a one pound i think it was clutch sensor or i can't even remember what the actual sensor was that failed um and to come so close it's amazing but what it did teach me more importantly is when you have the best tires or the best package for that racetrack, you can really shine. So those Bridgestone tires were pretty special, I think, that weekend. Uh, that suited the Yamaha, suited um, Damon, suited the team. So it can show you when you do get the piece of the puzzle correct. You know what's possible. Um, and I, I say I've you know used all those experiences over the years to help. I hope try to build a team um, in Formula E that takes the benefit of understanding the parameters are important. So it's a bit devastating, but you've got to learn from you know those experiences and make it a, a sustainable package. I guess that experience must have sort of helped you in those first sort of difficult opening races for Tachita when, you know, there were those sort of procedural errors that were probably only small things, but ended up looking like quite big things on TV to a, 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 an educated audience or whatever. Yeah, I mean, when I when I went to McLaren after Arrows, I was obviously you can imagine trying to understand what were the biggest differences between Arrows and uh, and McLaren, and and so much of it was obviously an incredible professional organisation, McLaren. But there was things like I was just checking today, you know, what, what how many engines we had, and I think we had five different engines in five years at Arrows, and it's really hard to sort of explain how much extra work you have to do when you have to replace the engine every year. You have to get used to a new group of people, a new engine manufacturer, a new way of working. And it, and when I went to McLaren, you could imagine they've got procedures and processes that have been in place for 
many, many years and a confidence that those processes and procedures win world championships. So a, a confidence in the, in the organization. And we had one engine. So I think the time I was there, we had a Mercedes. So, you know, the Mercedes stayed same engine, didn't really change as many things as you would imagine. Um, and so that stability, that process, that procedure really, you know, was a really interesting um, thing that I learned when I was in McLaren. So, yeah, as you say, when things are going wrong, but you've seen what perfection can be, although we didn't win a championship when I was at, at McLaren, you can at least say this is what we're targeting and this is the direction we're going. And I know that will be successful once we pull um, uh, pull everything together. So it, it does make a difference when you um, know how to win or have seen how to win. That certainly uh, makes a difference because it gives more confidence in, in the future. That must have made it even more difficult to make that transition from, from McLaren to go to setting up Super Aguri because for all the, you know, we'll get on to talking about that uh, great partnership of Sato and Davidson, but you were own, you were set up to sort of be at best a sort of back of the midfield team. So that, that must have been a completely different mindset. In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. If you look at um, us in season three and four with Tejita, we deliberately took the Renault powertrain because at the time Renault was the most experienced OEM in the series and you could see that they probably had taken much of their learning from F1 so I don't see it as quite so different I think we were taking the good pieces of the puzzle from Honda uh, obviously Dave Richards almost did the same thing with um, with McLaren I believe at, at the same time and obviously Red Bull did um, as well theoretically you should be able to take the best piece of the puzzle and put them together and potentially generate a race winning car I don't think we expected to win the championship but if the main team i honda at the time had been able to win the championship we felt we could have been in the top five so having got come from arrows going to mclaren and then doing something completely new it was a, a really interesting and uh yeah fascinating challenge so on that um rekindling of the old carlin f3 relationship between sato and uh, davison was was a great little uh double act for us uh to watch wasn't it it was, yeah. I mean, there was a, there was a point, wasn't there, in two thousand and seven, um, when they were. I mean, underdog isn't the um, isn't the point, is it? It's not the term. They were really punching above their weight massively, and and, and Davidson and Sato. When you look at it, I mean, Davidson's uh, career, Formula One career, sort of petered out after that, which was such a shame because I think he would have been. I don't know. If, I'm sure Mark would agree. He he certainly had the capability to. To, to get success, podiums, and, and potentially wins in in the right machinery, and and Takuma Sato was always always great uh, showbiz, wasn't he? I mean, it just just one of those drivers, uh, the, the the Asian John Lacey, as I uh, as I, I sort of remember him. He was <laughs> his, his heart was always on his sleeve, and he was such a great racer. And um, I think Montreal is the race that that sticks out in my mind when he was running pretty comfortably in the top. I think it was a top six, was it top eight? Mark, you'll remember. Yeah, I mean, I remember him distinctly. Remember him passing Alonso uh, in that race and getting to uh, getting into a really good position. And then, of course, um, it, it you know as things do with teams that that, that, that are struggling financially, it, it it went it went away. But what what do you remember about that Montreal weekend in particular, Mark? Because the, the, there was you must have been sort of blinking and wiping your eyes at the at the timing screens during that event. 
So, as you know, um, Aguri had a long relationship with Bridgestone, and that just links me back to the, you know, to the Arrows in in Hungary, where the Bridgestones were incredible. It just happened that that weekend, I I got on very very well with the Bridgestone technical director, and we realised quite early in the weekend that maybe their tyre wasn't perfect for um, that racetrack, the one that others had chosen, because in those days you could choose tyres. But the tyre that we'd chosen on our car on that you know, weekend was actually going to be pretty strong. Um, and so we kind of had started to see that during the weekend. So you can imagine we were quite excited because I'd put a lot of focus on tyres because um, that was one of our potential advantages that we had. But, yeah, that race was pretty exciting. I think um, Anthony was... I think he was in third when he hit the um, the groundhog, um, which obviously ended up in the in the in the radiator duct, which was pretty bad. But then, yeah, when um, when Takuma overtook Alonso in the McLaren, of course, having come from McLaren a few years ago, that was pretty exciting. I I think I was pre- jumping up and down pretty pretty much. Um, and then when we obviously finished the race in that position, it was um, yeah, a pretty special weekend. Did do you have a funeral for the groundhog mob after the race? Or? I think we caused a bit of trouble by saying um, he hit a beaver and that didn't go down very well with the local. Oh, no, it's, it's definitely groundhogs in, in Montreal. Yeah, that that wasn't a, a good moment for, for the groundhog, obviously. <laughs> yeah, good weekend, though. Taught me again about tyres and, and the potential that tyres can give you if you get things right. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, I, I guess it's not because they're the one part of the that's touching the actual road, but I, th- I think they're often, you know, forgotten about in terms of uh, the importance there um you mentioned earlier on about that decision to take a Renault uh, powertrain uh, informally uh, I think it, it surprised a few people um, that, that, that they had done that but of course it was in the rules that you were able to uh, to do that do you see that as the as the transitional point into turning a team where it is now and did you look at any other options or was it always uh, the idea to have Renault we did speak to everybody, but I'd also had a really good relationship with Renault um, back when they were super tech in, in um, Formula One. And um, I'm trying to remember who said this to me. I think it might have been back in my touring car days. You know, you'd rather have 500 horsepower from Renault than 600 horsepower from somebody else. Um, so there was, a, there was always people saying, oh, we've got more horsepower, but you'd rather have reliable and real horsepower, which Renault was, um, you know, very much uh, known to deliver. I also had quite a big theory about the I can get very technical about things and call it the R&D spillover from Formula One so I don't underestimate how much knowledge came from the F1 program because as you know a lot of the Kurs development fed into a lot of the uh, supply chain of what's happening in Formula E so um, my expectation was that yeah uh, Renault had made good use of then learning in in F1, uh, I don't think anybody else had had the learning at that time from another big program. And um, certainly Renault was and is capable of delivering customer, customer teams. That's the other element. Because they'd done customer teams in F1, and I had a good experience of being a customer team of them in, in F1. And um, they'd just been ramping down some of their uh, junior series. As a, as a group, they were certainly the ones that could deliver a powertrain that they'd learned in other indus- in other championships and um, we knew they could deliver and, and supply us. And also they were, I mean, super fair with us in season three and four. As you know, we had a bit of competition obviously with EDAMs and at no time did they really 
um, try and stop us fighting. So uh, to be to be you know fair to them, they did a, a great job being fair, knowing the knowing the um, technology and um, uh, being a really good partner at the time. So I mean, it was one of the um, more amazing transformational stories informally, wasn't it? This this team that had sort of been one of the few to carry on using the, the season one stuff and the season two suddenly vaulting themselves in, into uh, title-winning contention. What, what are your memories of, uh, of that period? Well, funnily enough, I was actually at the very first running of a Tachita car, which was carried out by Mar in the car park of the Donington unit. And I think it was August 20, what would that be? 2016, wasn't it? And he sort of did a, yeah. a, a run around. I happened to be there speaking to Nigel Beresford from um, Dragon and was literally driving away from the car park and in my mirror saw this black dart sort of in my mirror. So I, I got a bit curious and sort of went through the bushes and saw it on this Donington um, little little piece of uh, tarmac behind the units. And, um, yeah, I think it's fair to say, and we do touch on this in our piece on the birth of Tachita, that at, at that stage the team was... Um, I, I don't know how to put it. It was it was a band of brothers, really, Mark, wasn't it? There was um, the, one of your one of your numbers told me and and since given me a few or looked at a few. Let me look at a few photos of your your gearbox assembly uh, area, which was in a hotel room in Castle Donington. So that that gives you a bit of an idea of where the team came from and and then where it got to in such a you know. There's the first season, at the end of the first season, John Oakville won in Montreal, and from where it was. At the start of the season, when we saw uh, you know a number of succession of mistakes, it is an amazing story, and uh, you know I think they deserve a whole lot of credit for that the the the, uh, the management and the technical team because I, I can't think of another startup because that's really what it was. Okay, there was some there was some staff from Aguri, but Aguri was on its knees at the end of season two um, financially, and then the um, the transition into Tachita took a number of months. And um, and it started from absolutely nothing. So, yeah, it's one of the the true sort of uh, rags to riches stories of, of Formula E, and maybe even sort of international motorsport as well. I think. Well, I think that's a very uh, nice way to leave it, Mark. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, the very best of luck for whatever it is that concludes uh, season six, um, and hopefully you can break the curse of uh, Templehof if indeed we do end up going there. Um, Sam, thanks for joining us at Ever. Uh, you can read his musings on the formation of Tachita and, and all the other stuff going on in the Formula E Championship on our website, which is thehyphenrace.com. Um, don't forget all the other lovely podcasts we do, including Bring Back V10s, which uh, Mark alluded to earlier. Um, but we're going to have a second series of that coming up soon. Glenn will be pleased that I'm sort of breaking out on a rival podcast, but uh, I'll tell him my plan for that soon. Um, but yes, thank you very much, everyone, and uh, come back soon. Cheers. Bye-bye.